Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. As I already mentioned, it's wonderful to have so many members that want to reach out and to help individuals on a daily basis. That's what your life is all about. Uh, I understand that about 13 to 15 of you were in Brushy yesterday helping clean up after the tornadoes that went through there. I understand that some of you actually helped my father on our farm, and, and I appreciate that a lot. Uh, now you know a little bit of what I've went through uh, all those years growing up. That's the way I spent every Saturday. But you didn't have to do that. And uh, what a wonderful, wonderful gift it is uh, to us and to the people there that God's children would care enough many miles away to drive and to help out in a time of need. Let's let that always be our life, that we want to constantly reach out to others for the glory of God. Where do you live? As we continue a series on relationships, that's really what we're wanting to drive home in this series. Where do you live? Have you ever moved? Many of you in this auditorium, you have moved. I remember a move that I made that there was no move, I don't guess, that could be hardly any more drastic than the move that we made as Tracy and I were newlyweds and we rented a little two-bedroom house beside an elderly couple that they had been married for about 55 to 60 years. They were faithful Christians and she would bring little snacks over to us and he, if he was out in the yard, would come over and visit and they were the kindest, sweetest, most gentle Christian couple that you could ever want as neighbors. And then behind us and to the other side of us was rolling pasture with cattle grazing in it and then one day we loaded a truck and when we unloaded our truck, we unloaded the truck in Riverhead, New York our neighbor was a four-story crack house. They could look down and would make cat calls onto our back deck. The first night we were there, pre-cell phone days, we decided because we didn't have a phone, we probably should go down and at least give our parents a call and let them know that we were fine and, and uh, moving in, settling in. And So we went down the road, just about from here to the traffic light there. And, uh, and by this time, it was night. And we went into a double phone booth. What appeared to be a drug dealer was in one side of the booth, and Tracy and I were crammed into the other side. I gave my folks a quick call. We visited for a few minutes, and then she began to visit with her family. And I noticed that while I was visiting my family, a police officer pulled up, light shining on us. Thought it was kind of rude. As she's visiting with her family, finally the officer gets out of the car, and you can tell he's a little bit perturbed. He knocks on the glass. I squeezed to open it up with both of us in there. It was a little bit tight fit. Swing around, he says, you guys aren't from here, are you? And I said, well, we've just moved into town. And he said, listen, you don't need to be here. I'm going to give you another minute or two before I leave, and you must be gone before I'm gone. I realized at that moment that we had moved. Life was very, very different. I want to tell you about a quick, quick version of two couples. As we think about where do you live, I think about the phone call that I received here on a Sunday afternoon whenever I was preparing for my Sunday evening lesson. As a young mother, tears, she described where she needed me to pick her up. 
She was at a cheap hotel, and her husband was locked up in a car, a police officer's car, handcuffs on. She'd found him there with another woman. She had slid all of his tires and began to bust out his windows. And then a domestic brawl broke out. I don't understand exactly why he was the only one arrested, but her children and her needed someone to pick her up. Now let's move. Let's move for just a moment. I think about another couple that I knew back in the 90s, a couple that they were the backbone of the church in the area of North Alabama. They were a little petite couple. And when they'd walk in church together, they usually had their hands intertwined, their fingers, and they would swing and they would just smile. And for about six months to a year that he was bedfast in his home before he passed away, anytime you went over to visit, she would sit on the edge of the bed and she would just run her fingers through his head and they could finish each other's sentences. And I remember the night that the surgeon called us in as he tried to describe to her with tears in his eyes, I did everything. I continued to sew and it continued to tear and I continued to sew and it continued to tear. And he said that over and over and finally he looked up with tears in his eyes and he said, ma'am, I could do nothing else. And at that moment, there was a feeling of holiness. As you realize that a godly, godly couple had shared their life together in God's way. Friends, I ask you again, where do you live? The two couples I've just described live in totally different places. Their homes are totally different. Their God is different from each other. Their behavior, their conduct is different. What drives their life is different. Who are you? Where do you live? Who is your God? What drives your marriage? What drives you as a parent? What drives you as a child? What drives you as a best friend? Where do you live? Do you realize the text that's been so capably read for us, the great emphasis that's placed upon what kind of people we're to be? Peter pulls out the description that had been saved for the children of Israel. All of these glorious descriptions, and now in the New Covenant, Peter is allowed to use these same glorious descriptions to describe God's children, Christians. Those that are saved by Jesus Christ. Did you notice that one of those descriptions is back in verse 9 of, of 1 Peter, the second chapter, is that is a holy nation. Think about that word, holy. And not only that, his own special people. But who are the holy people? What is the holy nation? As we glance down in verse 11 and 12, we see that it's people that are willing to take a journey to abstain from fleshly lust. You see that in 11? And then in 12, we see having their conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Friends, what I want you to see is we piece together many scriptures today, just as we did last week, that whenever we decide where we're going to live, it's going to have a lot to do about whether or not we're holy. What is our conduct? Are we willing to abstain from living a life that is by desire or by happiness or by emotion or by the feeling of the moment? And are we willing to live a life that is partaking in the divine nature of the holiness of God. I want to again this morning begin just as last week 
Let's read together a few passages. One out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, the first chapter. If you'll help me put 14, 15, and 16 together in your mind, and then we're going to flip over and read 2 Peter, the first chapter, real quickly. Look with me, if you will. 1 Peter, the first chapter. This will be on about 1,076 of your pew Bible. Notice in 14 what we have to stay away from, the former things. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. Do you remember in Romans, the 12th chapter, and verse 2, be not conformed to this world, be ye transformed? You see, again, he's talking about what we're not to be conformed. It's not our lust that conforms us. It's not the world and the desire that conforms us. But instead, notice what we're to do in 15. But as he who called you is holy, God is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You see, now God's going to drive our conduct. Verse 16, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. With that thought in mind, go to 2 Peter, the first chapter. 2 Peter, the first chapter in verse 4, we read the middle of a sentence picking up. He says, by which, 2 Peter 1 and 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Notice that, partakers of the divine nature. How are we going to be holy? We're going to stop living off the lust and pulling from the lust, and we're going to be delivered by that or from that so that we can be partakers of the divine nature of God. Now notice what we're going to escape. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. As we think about this, I'd like for you to look at this model here. This model on the screen is just one way we could illustrate what the Lord teaches here and in many, many passages. God's house is a holy house. And anybody that wants to be in a part of God's house, they've received the invitation. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. He wants to give us a place to dwell. We have to decide if we're going to escape the corruption of lust. In other words, am I willing to submit my life to the life of God? Am I willing to to be a partaker? To partake of the divine nature of God. Now, as we go to this next slide, you'll notice something that's added here. When we live a life out in the world, we're drowning in our sins, but the irony is we think things are well with us usually because that's a self-centered life. I'm getting what I want. I'm doing what I want. In relationships, I'm trying to get out of the relationship what is best for me. I'm trying to let the relationship serve me. And God says, I want to call you to holiness. I want to call you to a relationship where God is the center of the relationship. There, all of our conduct will be holy instead of our conduct here being based solely off the motive of happiness. Now, I think you've understood this, but let's say it just to make sure. We're not saying in in the conduct of holiness that we'll never experience happiness. We'll experience much happiness, much joy, much peace. The point is this. Happiness is not the driving force. We're not sitting around thinking about what I want and what would make me happy and that being the standard of our conduct. The standard of our conduct is I want to be a partaker of the divine nature of God. I want to be holy just as He is holy. And so then we act and react to everyone in which we share a relationship based upon who our God is, not based upon who they are. And so therefore we have a holy conduct that will result in much peace and joy and happiness. With that in mind, we do think about whether or not happiness trumps holiness or does holiness trump happiness. 
I believe we see already from the study this morning that it is holiness that trumps happiness. And that ought to be the goal in every one of our relationships as we ask the question again this morning, where do you live? Do you live in a relationship where you are striving more than anything to be holy? Then we can find the greatest measure of peace and happiness that God can ever offer as we strive to be a holy person. And the wonderful things about families is that families give us a daily opportunity to display the love of God. If you will, be turning with me to Romans, the 13th chapter. In just a moment, we're going to look at Romans, the 13th chapter. But as we're doing that, I'd like for you to take a look at this next slide. When we think about the classroom for love, in other words, we've already pointed out in our model that we cannot know the way we are designed to share relationships unless we learn from the Lord. If we rely upon our own nature we'll miss everything that God has designed for us to share. And so we have to be willing literally to enter the classroom with God and say, God, I want you to instruct me on how to practice this love that you want me to practice. And so as we think about the classroom that God would invite us into, this area of holy living so that we can experience these relationships, it's interesting to me how the high level, the great esteem that God places on the relationship of marriage, the relationship of the husband and wife. Now, we could look at many, many relationships. Let's just scan a few that's on the slides right now. First in Hosea, the second chapter, in verse 16, out of all the ways God could describe the way He wants us to view Him, He says that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. God wants us to see him as we were the bride or the wife and that he is the husband. He wants us to see that. Now, that's beautiful, but think what that does for marriage. That esteems marriage. Of all the ways that God could have illustrated this, he illustrated the relationship he wants to have with us to say, it's kind of like a husband and wife. Well, what does that tell us? How important is this relationship of husband and wife? And do I just need to maybe get it right? No, God's saying, this is great importance. We see a similar teaching, Isaiah 62. It's the fifth verse, but it's the last part of the verse. As it says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. How much joy does God have for us whenever we become His? He says it's like a, a bridegroom the great joy that he has when a bride becomes his. Matthew, the ninth chapter and verse 15, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. When we look at Matthew 22, 1 through 14, the wedding banquet is referring there to the kingdom. When we look in Revelation 19 and 17, it says the wife has made herself ready, talking about the church has made herself ready for the coming of the bridegroom, which is Jesus. Do you see? How over and over in the scriptures, God shows us this relationship that He has designed. It's divine in its design. And then He promotes it to say it is to be a holy relationship. Now as we look at Romans the 13th chapter, I'd like for you to notice verse 8 first. And then we're going to skip down uh, to the concluding verse of this chapter and tied up with 14 because we don't have time to work through everything that is in between. But in, Ro in Romans the 13th chapter in verse 8, we see that as we enter in this classroom to be taught about love, the love that he's talking about is not an elective. We are required to share this. Notice what he says in verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Friends, this is, this is a debt we have. 
How does God want us to interact with, whether it's our spouse or any family member or any brother and sister in Christ or any neighbor, co-worker, fellow student? He says, you owe it to love them. The love here is agape. It's a decision to do what's right and best. Now, as we think about this, it is of great interest to the study that we're doing this morning to see how all of this is going to be concluded in the 13th chapter. If you know your Bible very well, you remember Galatians 3 and 27 that tells us that we are baptized, we have put on Christ. Now, notice how this is in verse 14 here of Romans, the 13th chapter. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now, you can tell what the Lord is referring to there. He's saying, I want you to move. I want you to live a life of holiness. I want you to stop making provisions for the flesh. Stop fulfilling its lust. Stop being driven by yourself. But how are we going to do this? We have to become a Christian. We have to be baptized into Christ so that we can put on Christ, so that we can make that move to the holy place in which to dwell. Friends, it's such a simple principle, but it is so profound. I can't live in the realm of holiness with anyone else if I refuse to put on Christ. That's where I learn about the great love. That's where I enter the classroom ready to be instructed. The Scriptures would never separate our Christianity and our marriage. Now, we may be married to a non-Christian, but notice what I said there, talking about us personally. We can't live someone else's life. We can't change someone else. In our lives individually... There is no such thing as saying, here is what God requires of me as a Christian, but then there's totally a separate life over here as a married person. No. We live on the holy ground and every relationship we share reflects the fact that we live as holy people. With that in mind, I want to share with you an illustration. I don't want anyone here to think that uh, I think that Augustine is, is a great uh, uh, example or, or uh, that he is a standard by which we ought to base our faith. But when we look at his teachings about marriage in the uh, 4th and 5th century, he gave three benefits of marriage. And notice the first he said was offspring. The second, he said, was faith or fidelity. The third that he said was sacrament. And what he meant by that was that it was a solemn oath that was given that was greater than just man himself. You remember Jesus said, What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Now just to illustrate how easy it is for us to get off track and and think about things completely well with a standard that is so much less than what God has laid out. In the 1400s, the uh, Anglican reformers, they picked up on his writings and they decided to write causes for the blessings that he gave about marriage. And notice as they list three things, at a glance you may think there's not a big difference. I hope that the difference is glaring to you. 
The first is very similar, as he says, procreation. The second, the remedy for sexual sin. But notice the terrible change in three. Mutual comfort. How would you define marriage? If you were going to list the great blessings or the great causes, do you think it's just about comfort? I would like for a young couple sometime that from the time they get engaged to about a year after their marriage uh, has begun, I would like for them to count how many times individuals said to them, Oh, I hope you're happy. Oh, I hope you have a happy life together. Now, friends, we'd expect that from people in the world who do not understand anything about holy living. And so to them, the greatest request you could ask out of any relationship is that we have a mutual comfort. Hey, what's better than one person being happy in a relationship than both people being happy in a relationship? You can't get any better than that. Oh, yes, you can. There's something much higher than that. What about if both people were holy in a relationship? You see, that brings us to question the thought, how often do we truly think of marriage as holy matrimony? How often do we describe marriage as a sacred marriage or a sacred matrimony? I'm afraid we get caught up so oftentimes in the thinking of the world. That if my marriage is going to be what it can be, I've got to figure out how to be happy. And I've got to figure out how to make the other person happy. And then I've started coming down and thinking along the lines of lust and desire. Instead of the high standard of holiness that says, God, what do you want out of my life? As we think about this classroom, I'd like for you to think about the instruction as we go to 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, notice quickly as we look at only the highlight parts here. Paul, when he speaks in 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, verse 14, that a love that in Christ, the love of Christ that compels us. When we have that holy living, that love of Christ, it compels us. In verse 16, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, Paul wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentile before he became a Christian. But now that he's become a Christian, he looks as a Gentile as a soul. Now, as we think about this, think about us as husbands and wives. If you were not a Christian, how would you view your spouse in a different way? Because there's a huge difference in the way a Christian's going to view their spouse and the way someone that's the world's going to view their spouse. Do you view your spouse as a soul? Do you see your spouse not now according to the flesh, but you see them as someone that you want to share a relationship with and you want that relationship to be holy, at least everything that you can bring to that relationship? When we back up there in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter and verse 9, he gives a wonderful standard. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, talking about alive or dead, present or absent from the Lord, to be well-pleasing to Him. You see, that's our goal when we're living in holiness. I want to please the Lord. How does God want me to treat my wife? Ladies, how does God want you to treat your husband? I want to please God first and foremost as I think about a holy relationship. With that in mind, we go to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, 
You notice there the teachings that you're probably familiar with in 25 through 27. In Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. I've read this passage many, many times, as probably you have. That phrase, just as, stood out to me in the study this time like it never has before. That's powerful. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And what did he do here? He made a holy sacrifice of giving his life. But notice the second thing that he did there. He gave the church, which for the husbands is giving your wife a holy place to live. Do you notice there in verse 26, he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. In other words, to sanctify means to set apart. So we move from drowning in the world, we are moved by the Lord to this holy living. Jesus moves the church to a place that is sanctified. Now husbands, here's the question I have to ask myself. Am I willing to make holy sacrifices in my life? Am I willing to give my family a holy place to to dwell? We can't change the world. I can't change the hatred the cursing, the swearing, the gossiping that goes out in the world. But I can make sure that I don't offer that within my house to my family. I can't change all of the vices that everybody that my kids may go to school with and and my family may live around and we may share as being a part of mankind. But I can do my part as a husband to make sure that I do not offer those as a place in which to dwell. Friends, my plea to all of us husbands is this. If we've been washing our hands of the fact that we live in such a corrupt world, we can never have a holy family and a holy place to live, we've thrown in the towel. We can offer a holy place to to dwell. And notice finally the holy conduct, as he says in 27, that he, Jesus, might present to her the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. He's saying that the church can truly have a conduct of holiness. And he says, this is the way I want husbands to love their wives. I want them to make holy sacrifices. I want them to give them a holy place to to dwell. And I want them to help their wives live a holy life. Not a life that's spotted and blemished by sin, but encourages their family to live that holiness. Friends, where do you live? Have you made that move so that you're offering you and your family a holy place. I'd like for us to close this morning by going to Matthew the 24th chapter. Many of us have read this this past week in our daily Bible readings. Again, never has this stood out to me before than when I read it this week with marriage on my mind because of this study. Do you remember in Matthew the 24th chapter we have a glance at the end of time, but Jesus decided to illustrate it by going back to the story of Noah. And he says in Matthew 24 and 36, 
But of that day and hour, no one knows. Talking about the coming of Jesus. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. Notice this. Marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Friends, paint this picture that Jesus is trying to paint for us. Noah worked on the ark for a hundred years. And you can imagine Noah going around and preaching to individuals, repent, turn back to God. Perhaps he even invited them to have a place to come into the ark. And you know what? They were just doing day-to-day things, eating and drinking. What many of us will do in just a few hours at lunch. And they were involved in day-to-day relationships. Falling in love. Getting married. Do you see the picture that Jesus is painting here? The way Jesus paints this picture, and I'm not trying to put too much in it. You read it and see if this is what you get. There were actually couples that were getting married the day that the flood came. There were actually couples falling in love with each other as Noah was inviting them to save their lives. But for whatever reason, they got so wrapped up in their relationships with each other that they never stopped and made sure that their relationship with God was right. And their end was destruction. Our problem is never that we love people too much. Our problem is that we love God too little. When we love God the way we ought to love God, we move. We move to a holy place. And when we live there, we love everybody the way we ought to love them because our standard comes from the divine nature of God. Jesus is going to come again. And I need to ask myself, have I got so wrapped up in day-to-day things and even relationships on this earth that I have failed to prepare for the coming of the Lord? And then the truth is, if I have failed in that, I've also failed in my relationships here because I'm not offering the holiness that others deserve as they share a relationship with me. This morning, we ask the question again, Where do you live? Do you need to move? You can bring Christ your broken life. Christ can take that which is broken and He can heal it. And He can put it in place. And He can make us holy. If you've never been baptized into Christ to move away from drowning in sin, to move to that relationship with Him... Won't you be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins as a believer, willing to repent and turn away from that and make that move? Maybe you've made that move and somewhere along the way you've begun to focus back downward instead of focusing upward. And you've begun to flex the ways of the world instead of reflect the ways of holiness. Friends, we're robbing ourselves and we're placing our soul in jeopardy. There's not anyone here holy on their own merits by their own rights, but by the grace of God and by the instruction in God's classroom, 
we can be what God has designed for us to be. And if we can help you this morning with that, come as we stand and as we sing. Bring Christ your broken heart.